You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Welcome to this podcast of the BJSM. I'm Babette Pleim, Deputy Editor, and I'm here at the UK SEM conference in London with Alan Vernack. Alan, welcome. Thank you very much, Babette. Alan has worked in athletics for many years in Canada. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about your background? Okay, well, I used to work with uh, Athletics Canada, or track and field as we still call it in the uh, in North America. Um, I was a team doctor there for about uh, 16 years, and also I worked with uh, Judo Canada for about the same amount of time. Um, and then, of course, I worked, as many sport physicians do, with uh, our local soccer team, uh, skiers, and so on. So I had quite a lot of uh, clinical experience and on-the-ground experience with athletes and having gone, of course, to you know, world championships in athletics and uh, Uh, quite a number of, of Olympic Games and such. Yes, and um, you're now medical director of the WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency. You started working in 2009. What is your role with the WADA? Well, as you said, I'm the medical director, and uh, there's a few areas which are really under my jurisdiction. Uh, one of the main ones is the therapeutic use exemption. As you realize that we have prohibited lists in sport, um, but that includes a number of medications that are sometimes used by athletes around the world who have legitimate medical concerns, and therefore they need to see physicians, um, put some documents together, prove that they have an illness and therefore would be allowed to take certain medications that could otherwise be considered performance enhancing, uh, things like insulin, uh, some asthma medication, ADHD medication, and so on. So what WADA does is we don't actually grant therapeutic use exemptions. Sometimes we get applications to that. We are really a regulatory and monitoring agency. So therefore, all of the anti-doping organizations around the world, which consist of national anti-doping organizations, uh, such as uh, UKAD here in, in the United Kingdom, um, or international federations who often act as anti-doping organizations, and actually even some major games organizations such as the, the uh, IOC and the Commonwealth Games are really in some ways under uh, our, our jurisdiction. Uh, and what we do is we really take a, a look at what everybody is doing and make sure that the, that the process is working as it should. And do you feel it is working as it should? Yes, I think so. I think that um, there still needs to be a fair bit of education. And obviously there are certain organizations uh, that um, are a little bit more experienced, uh, more resourced than others. So they know what they're doing a little bit better. And uh, we tend to focus on the ones who are trying to do their best, but uh, sometimes they, they need our guidance. And when you say... Um, education and organizations. Who are you referring to? Who do you feel, what groups need to be educated more? Is it the doctors, the coaches, the athletes, or the anti-doping organizations? Everything. <laughs> All of the above. Uh, when I was talking, for example, the TUE process, that's something that, you know, athletes have to know, first of all, that if you are taking a substance uh, that maybe any substance and you have to, you need to check to make sure that's not a prohibited substance look on the prohibited list then go and make sure that your physician knows what's going on and they usually what we tell them to do is contact their national anti-doping organization um, and then the national anti-doping organizations themselves need to kind of know how to work this whole process how to use their uh, kind of international database management system atoms and, and so on so we uh, when I was talking about 
educating, I was talking about at that particular time, the national anti-doping organizations but or the international federations, but in actual fact, the education needs to seep down uh, all the way down to athletes, coaches, parents, and everybody so they understand the entire anti-doping process uh, from, from A to Z. Yes, and we know now that London is organizing the Olympics in 2012. Um, what are the major challenges with respect to TOEs and the Olympics? The main thing, and this is always the, the issue when it comes to a particular games, is actually making sure that the athletes, again, are aware that there is a TUE process and that they get their TUEs uh, done in advance. Because um, not every country uh, has sport physicians and, uh, close by, like for example, the Netherlands. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them are larger countries and the people will make a team at, at a last moment and then they'll suddenly discover, oh no, we need to get a TUE, I have to go see my physician, we have to go through some work, maybe I need some laboratory tests to prove that I actually have a, le a legitimate medical condition, get all that paperwork into the anti-doping organization we usually say three weeks in, in advance of any competition, but in actual fact, this is something that, of course, could be done a, a year in advance. And you certainly don't want athletes being diverted from their main goal, which is, uh, you know, a good performance at the games. And this is the kind of stuff that you would like to see taken care of well in advance. And what are the main successes in the, the last two, three years regarding TUEs that the WADA has accomplished? Um, not sure if we could say successes, but I think it's just kind of the ongoing support uh, to the anti-doping organizations. And one of our big roles is that we write up, uh, we call medical information to assist TUE committees, which are essentially guidelines on uh, how one should grant a TUE for all sorts of different medical conditions. And they're written by medical conditions as opposed to by prohibited list by substance, because that's the way doctors think. And, and patients or athletes. You know, if you have asthma, what is, how do you go about getting the proper tests and what are the medications that may be prohibited? Um, this last summer, we were looking at the um, androgens or, you know, testosterone uh, and analogs and tried to come up with some rules and guidelines. As you can imagine, it's a bit of a contentious uh, issue, um, deciding whether or not uh, how one can grant a TUE for uh, low androgen levels uh, if somebody does not have an organic dysfunction uh, will be quite difficult uh, at this point, and we've, we've delineated that quite clearly now in the most recent uh, medical information guideline. Mm -hmm. And at this conference, I saw that there were several uh, presentations on the biological passport. Is that something you're involved with? Yes, the, uh, the athlete biological passport is actually, uh, again, something under my jurisdiction. Um, it is the, the concept is that it's a, an indirect detection of doping. Rather than looking in an analytical way through laboratory tests, urine or blood, to see if somebody actually took a prohibited substance, what you do is you look at a biomarker of doping. Uh, and just to give a simple one, of course, is if you took something like erythropoietin or blood transfusions, this would ne uh, change your levels of hemoglobin, it would change your hematocrit, it would change your reticulocyte percentage, and that is what we would be looking at. And then we evaluate this in a longitudinal fashion. So we look at the longitudinal profiles over time. 
uh, and this is a way that one can look to see if an athlete is, is manipulating uh, their blood. And I think in some ways this is also the bit of the future of doping and we'll be looking at this for not just hematological but for uh, steroid modules, uh, endocrinological modules and, and probably even proteomics and such going down into the future. And the idea also is that this could be a way of doing what we call it, you know, more of an intelligent testing. There is a fair bit of, of money spent in anti-doping and it's necessary, but we want to keep some of the costs down. So we, if we have uh, a way of looking at particular profiles and then telling the anti-doping organization or the anti-doping organization can then decide which athlete needs to be tested at what point for what substance and which athletes could probably uh, have reduced testing. Mm-hmm. But how would you then differentiate someone who went to high-level training from, from doping use? Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, what we have is, uh, just sticking with the hematological module, information gets put into our database atoms and then there is a, a, a adaptive software model which is based on a, on a Bayesian model a statistical model based on some a priori re results that get put in and to see what is the likelihood that uh, uh, the next result is would be considered a normal or abnormal result so this becomes an intra-individual variation is that we, we start looking at. Now, what people think is, oh, how, you know, we, you see this, uh, there's a trigger uh, coming up from the adaptive model software and say, aha, this person's doping. It's not the, the case at all. What it is, the trigger would say that there is, this is not something that one would expect in, a, in an athlete who is not doping. And then, and this is a crucial process, it would then go to an expert panel. And the expert panel will then look at all elements uh, of, of the hematological profile, of the training program, um, and so on. And if everything looks uh, quite suspicious, at some point the athlete would be asked to explain what may have happened in a particular date uh, where the hemoglobin had dropped down to a very low level, and that also would be taken into consideration. Uh, altitude at some point was actually put into some of the formulas, but it's difficult to, to analyze, and now it's actually been removed, uh, and now will be evaluated by the expert uh, analysts, you know, based on if somebody was uh, at altitude for, for, for three weeks at a training camp at a particular date versus if somebody, you know, uh, flew through uh, Bolivia for, for one day or two, which would not have had effect. But it, it does still sound like a, quite a complicated process. It is a complicated process. Mm -hmm. um, there's two elements of the, to the passport. One of that is that it's very effective for targeting. So you can look at some of these profiles and say there's something that's really qu not quite right here. There's obviously some physiological variation, but you, you and also even you know laboratory analytical variation. But you look at some and you say no, this hemoglobin should not be 1313, and then right before a major event, suddenly it's at 17.3. There's something not quite right here. Um, so we do look at some of uh, of uh, of these things and those athletes could be targeted much more. Now, to actually get an anti-doping rule violation, which uh, we are allowed to according to the World Anti-Doping Code, 
you do need to have a, a pretty solid case, and uh, this is why we have an athlete biological passport guidelines and technical documents to, to explain in very, very quick, uh, clear detail exactly how the tests are, are supposed to be taken. For example, the athlete uh, has to be sitting for 10 minutes. Uh, they have to be two hours post-training. Um, the samples have to be uh, shipped within and analyzed within 36 hours. And then you need to have a group of three experts over all agreeing that uh, this is you know there is a high likelihood of doping with the entire picture that they see in front of them including the passport and all other relevant information you still have one day in clinical practice and you have a background in athletic does that help you in your role as medical director for the WADA Absolutely. I, I think it's actually crucial uh, for me to function in, in a, a, an optimal capacity. Um, I, I don't look at athletes as, uh, as uh, just people who are out there cheating. I, I think that I understand that every athlete is really trying to improve their performance as, and working extremely hard to do that. And uh, the vast, vast majority of the athletes are doing this in a, in a clean fashion and they themselves, you know, do not like to see other athletes who are cheating and, and, you know, knocking them off of the podium, which is really what we're about. We're really about, you know, the clean athletes and we don't look at it as, uh, uh, you know, we're just anti-doping, chasing after the bad guys. So I think that's, it's important. And I think working with the athletes uh, gives me that perspective and uh, allows me to understand that the way that the athletes uh, like I said, are always, they're always looking for the edge. And I think that one has to understand that. And that does not mean that that's a, an evil person. But at the same time, there are rules and there's areas where one cannot go past. And I think that the athletes uh, do understand that. And like I said, for the, the vast majority, do respect that. Yes. Is there something coming up for 2012? Well, I think it's important to know that uh, WADA really is, a, is an organization that is made out of uh, governments and, and other stakeholders, which are uh, international federations, anti-doping organizations, uh, sporting federations, so on. And we have a revision of the World Anti-Doping Code uh, every few years. And the process is actually going to be starting in right about now actually uh, in, in December of, of, uh, of 2011 the process is going to be beginning it's going to go through uh, three different code revision stages and what we do is we ask uh, anybody who has any relation to sport or any organization to give us their input because we are trying to make the system uh, as as good as it can be and what we do is we listen to everybody out there who has suggestions at any level for for any particular reason how to make the system better yes so it's going to be a very interesting challenge in the coming years for um, for the wada well thank you very much for your time and i hope you have a safe trip back to canada thank you very much uh, babette uh, it, was a, it was a pleasure for more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.